Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to the program, and thanks so much for joining us today on C. diff spores and more. We would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor, Clorox Healthcare. Please visit the Clorox Healthcare website, cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare. Today is our guest is Madeline King, PharmD, BCIDP. Dr. King is a graduate from Texas A&M Health Science Center and then completed a PGY-1 pharmacy residency at New York Presbyterian and a PGY-2 pharmacy residency in infectious disease at Temple University College of Pharmacy. Dr. King is currently an assistant professor of clinical pharmacy at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and maintains a practice site at Cooper University Hospital, where she works closely with the infectious diseases team. Her passion are infectious diseases and public health, and she truly enjoys teaching. And we are so glad to have you here today, Dr. King, and we welcome you to the program. And we are so grateful that you are. And today, Dr. King is going to be discussing C. diff guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship. And Dr. King, to lead off, can you describe and explain to us why the C. diff guidelines were updated recently? Yeah, of course. Um, so the C. diff guidelines for many years had recommended a drug called metronidazole first line. Um, and that was kind of based off of some smaller studies in the 1980s and 90s that compared it to oral vancomycin and didn't really show any difference in outcomes. Um, however, after the year 2000, there were more studies comparing metronidazole to oral vancomycin, and they did show a difference with vancomycin being um, a better option, showing better outcomes for patients. So there was an official update in 2018 that removed metronidazole as first line and changed the first line recommendation to vancomycin. Um, It said that vancomycin or another drug called fidaxomycin, which is relatively new, um, would be recommended over metronidazole for an initial episode of C. diff infection. Um, Vancomycin and fidaxomycin can reduce the rates of recurrence of C. diff, which is a big concern that we have when we think about patients who have even one episode of C. diff, that the recurrence rate is very high. Um, We've seen that in severe disease, um, all-cause mortality is lower for those who receive oral vancomycin versus those who receive metronidazole in one study. Um, So that was the updates in 2018, and then following that, in 2021, there was a focused update just on a few things um, on the management of C. diff, Um, and basically this addressed the use of fidaxomycin and bezlotuximab. So instead of listing vancomycin oral as first line um, and fidaxomycin as an alternative or um, first line for a second occurrence, they actually recommended fidaxomycin first line for any occurrence, so first occurrence um, or second. Um, And then another drug called bezlotoximab, which is also relatively new to the game um, for the treatment of C. diff. So that's um, kind of a more recent recommendation for the guidelines. So now we're recommending using fidaxomycin um, rather than oral vancomycin, um, and that's really dependent on resource availability. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. King. And we know that there can be a few barriers. Can you explain that to us? 
Yeah, of course. So like I was saying, some of the barriers um, include cost and resource availability. So um, oral vancomycin up until 2018, um, for example, in hospitals, we could compound the drug using an IV vancomycin solution, um, and we could compound that into an oral solution in the hospital, and that was relatively inexpensive. In addition, outpatient pharmacies could also compound oral vancomycin. In 2018, a new product came on the market that was FDA-approved, um, that was an oral vancomycin solution, so it didn't have to be compounded anymore. But it was relatively expensive when it first came out. That was a bit of a concern. Um, and since then, the price has gone down a bit, um, but fidaxomycin remains very expensive. So uh, a recent search on my um, GoodRx app showed that the cost of vancomycin for one course of treatment would be um, around $150, $160. And that's about a 10-day course, whereas a course of cedaxomycin would cost over $4,000. Of note, there are manufacturer assistance and patient assistance programs through the manufacturer of cedaxomycin, but it's still a big barrier, especially for patients who um, have insurance that um, have a really high copay and therefore don't qualify for the patient assistance program or um, who don't have insurance and someone may not give them the the guidance to go through the patient assistance program. Um, So that's one of the barriers to the vancomycin and fidaxomycin is is the high cost. Um, And then moving on to talk about the bezlotoxinab that I mentioned earlier, which is really just used to to prevent recurrence of fetus. So bezlotoxinab is a one-time infusion um, that would be given at the end of a course of treatment for C. diff to prevent recurrences. Um, The cost is high, um, but we can get insurance to cover it in many cases here at my hospital. Um, But the other issue is the availability of infusion centers because it is an IV infusion. So there has to be an infusion center available at the facility that the patient's at. And for patients who may not live in a city or near a healthcare facility, it may be very difficult to get that infusion. So those are some of the... um, the main barriers to to getting treatment for C. diff. Thank you so much, Dr. King. And we did want to, um, in you know, share this information with our listening audiences that if they go to uh, their search engine on the on the computer, uh, like you mentioned, go to RX and the patient assistance program directly from Merck. They uh, also isn't there a coupon available? Uh, for those who have commercial insurance? There is. The one that I saw, which I haven't personally um, worked with myself, but the one that I saw could drop the copay for someone down to $50, um, but it also says that there's a maximum uh, benefit for the coupon of $3,400. So as I mentioned, the cost of fidaxomycin is um, upwards of 4000 So depending on what the, the cost is at the pharmacy, um, dropping it down to $50 may not be the case for all patients. It may just drop it down by $3,400, which may not bring it down quite as much as it seems. Okay. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And Dr. King, how can patients prevent acquiring a C. difficile infection? Yeah, so it's, it's kind of hard to prevent it. Um, we like to think about risk factors. So um, patients who are at a higher risk of developing C. diff, we, we try our best um, to, to really avoid anything that might um, 
might cause it, um, but sometimes that's not possible. So some of the risk factors that we think about are advanced age, multiple comorbid conditions, and communal living conditions. And by that, I mean things like nursing homes, skilled nursing facilities, and rehab facilities. Um, unfortunately, all blood-spectrum antibiotics carry the risk of C. diff. Um, and avoiding antibiotics when they're not necessary is a really key step where patients can advocate for themselves. Um, and I'll talk a little more about that later. Um, but some of the things that we do in the healthcare setting, um, we have something called antibiotic stewardship or antimicrobial stewardship. And basically what that means is we have healthcare providers, often pharmacists who are trained in infectious diseases, but also nurse practitioners and physicians. Um, that kind of monitor the use of antibiotics in different healthcare facilities. So this may be hospitals or nursing homes or urgent cares or um, major health centers. Um, and they, they try to minimize the, um, the frequency and the duration of high-risk antibiotics, the ones that are more likely to cause a C. diff infection. Um, we try and implement antibiotic stewardship programs to restrict certain antibiotics um, and help provide uh, resources to providers as to which antibiotics to choose. Um, we really like to um, push providers to choose antibiotics um, kind of based on local epidemiology uh, and the C. diff strains that are present. So restricting high-risk antibiotics like fluoroquinolones, clindamycin, cephalosporins is just one thing that some stewardship programs do, and others will have something that they call an antibiogram that really shows what the susceptibilities are of a lot of different pathogens at that facility or in that region so that we can really select the best antibiotic without having to select an extra broad antibiotic when we don't have to. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. King. And at this time, we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing C. difficile guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship with our guest, Dr. Madeline King. We'll be right back after these messages. Join us for a special two-hour live online event taking place on Monday, November 1st, starting at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. It's C. diff Survivors Day, dedicated to survivors of C. diff worldwide. Sign up now at cdiffsurvivorsday.com to register for free and join a variety of guest speakers and a chance to network with C. diff survivors from all over. This live online event is sponsored by Series Therapeutics, leading the microbiome revolution. Register today at cdiffsurvivorsday.com and we'll see you online November 1st. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. 
Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. And welcome back to the program. And thanks so much for joining us today on C. diff spores and more. We welcome back our guest today, Dr. Madeline King, who is here today discussing C. difficile guidelines, updates, and antibiotic stewardship. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. King. For having me. Oh, you're so welcome. And earlier, before the commercial, you were discussing the different antibiotics and how to prevent a C. difficile infection. Moving on, maybe you can explain to our listeners about how antibiotics prescribed, are they prescribed excessively or inappropriately in outpatient settings such as doctor's offices, urgent cares, and dental offices? Um. Yeah, uh, overwhelmingly, yes, <laughs> they are prescribed excessively and sometimes inappropriately um, in outpatient settings. And not to say that this doesn't happen also in inpatient settings. Um, however, as I mentioned before, uh, most inpatient settings uh, now have antimicrobial stewardship programs, so someone monitoring the use of antibiotics on a regular basis. So we have cut down on um, the amount of inappropriate antibiotic use in a lot of hospital settings. But we're just getting started with antimicrobial stewardship in the outpatient settings. Um, so there's high rates of antibiotic use in urgent cares, emergency departments, primary care clinics, um, things like uh, you might call a minute clinic in like a pharmacy or in dental offices. Um, other times antibiotics are prescribed are for surgical prophylaxis. So someone coming in for maybe an outpatient surgery might get antibiotics um, as prophylaxis. And, and sometimes that's fine and appropriate, but sometimes it's, it's not really appropriate for the situation. And one example of that is um, prior to a, a cardiovascular surgery or a joint arthroplasty, so joint replacement, um, a lot of times providers take urine cultures um, and antibiotic prophylaxis might be started based on the urine culture results, but there's not very much data to support the fact that whatever is seen in a urine culture would also be what's seen in a, a post-surgical or surgical site infection. So that's not really indicated. So that's one area where they're inappropriately used. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, th- there's a lot of reasons they could be inappropriately used for patients coming in complaining of respiratory symptoms, urinary tract symptoms, but may not have a true infection, may have something else going on. So there is a lot of um, overuse in the outpatient setting. Well, thank you so much for explaining that to our listeners, Dr. King. And Dr. King, how do you think we can reduce unnecessary or inappropriate use of antibiotics? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways. I think having antimicrobial stewardship programs is um, is a big component. So not just 
in the inpatient setting, but also expanding those to the outpatient setting, which is, is quite a challenge, especially when you might have a primary care office. It's a private practice, not affiliated with a large um, university academic medical center. So you don't necessarily have the resources that they have, and you don't necessarily have an infectious disease trained pharmacist or nurse practitioner provider in, in your clinic. Um, that's where it's really a challenge. Um, so, you know, part of antimicrobial stewardship is not really just being the antibiotic police, as we've been called sometimes, uh, but it's really just making sure that antibiotics are being used appropriately so that we can prevent adverse drug events like C. diff, but also prevent uh, resistance. Um, and we really want to be a resource for prescribers and other providers um, in the hospital and in the outpatient setting. We want to make ourselves available to provide information on the best antibiotic choice or maybe when an antibiotic isn't really recommended due to updated guidelines. Um, and education is also very important. So, for example, I recently spoke with a group of dentists about antibiotic use and the updated guidelines. Um, there's a couple of other ID pharmacists in the United States that also do this, that give, um, that give talks and educational programs as well as do research on the use of antibiotics in dental practices. So um, education is really a key thing, but having the resources to support the antimicrobial stewardship once education has been provided is another big step. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. King. And here is the million-dollar question. Are there particular antibiotics you would avoid to prevent an episode of C. difficile infections? Oh, yes. That is a great question. Um, so it, it's tough to say. Most antibiotics carry the risk of causing C. difficile infection because they alter the um, gut flora. There are some antibiotics that have a lower risk associated with them, um, meaning that we haven't seen C. diff occur quite as often with them as other antibiotics. Um, typically, in most literature that you might look at, the antibiotics that have the highest risk would be clindamycin, um, fluoroquinolones, and cephalosporins. So those are ones that um, are relatively broad, and we try to avoid when possible um, you know, unless the patient actually needs those antibiotics. But if we can give a, a narrower spectrum option, we definitely try. Um, clindamycin being the one with the highest reported incidence of, of cases um, overall. And then the class of antibiotics called tetracyclines, um, which includes things that you may have heard of, like doxycycline or minocycline, they tend to have the lowest rates of C. diff. Um, and there's a couple of drugs in newer, uh, newer classes, very similar to tetracyclines, um, tigacycline and aravacycline tend to have almost no rates of C. diff when those are given. But the, um, the issue there is that they're IV only. Um, so it's not something that every patient is going to get. They're things that we give in the hospital um, or for uh, more severe infections. Okay, thank you so much for answering that question. That's so important. And I know that our listeners will really hang on that because they always are wondering, you know, are there other antibiotics and there's the high risk and the low risk. So thank you for that. And Dr. King, what are some of the challenges in changing the prescribing practices among the providers? Yeah, that's a really hard um, thing to do. And it's hard on many levels. One of the things I just mentioned was that you may have clinics and urgent cares that aren't really affiliated with a larger health system and may not have as many resources as a larger health system. 
So getting them the resources is tough. You know, having funding, having a budget to um, get resources like an antimicrobial stewardship pharmacist or having educational materials provided. Those are difficult. Um, But the education is really important. Um, There's a lot of perceived pressure from parents of kids or patients themselves when they go to the the doctor's office to see a primary care physician or urgent care provider, um, you know, thinking that they need antibiotics because they have respiratory symptoms or urinary tract symptoms. And this actually isn't always the case. Um, There's a sociologist who does a lot of research um, and surveys, and she's found that um, oftentimes when providers say that they think the patient came in asking for antibiotics, they actually didn't. Um, So there's a lot of times that we could probably avoid giving antibiotics um, and kind of avoid that defensive medicine, as I've seen it written, um, of being afraid not to give the antibiotics because of either um, missing something or a lawsuit um, or something like that. So um, really just understanding what the patient is looking for and maybe they're just looking for, you know, essentially comfort in knowing that what they have is viral and it's going to go away without antibiotics. Um, Not to say that I haven't seen my own share of pushy people who really are just like asking for an antibiotic and they're not going to leave without one. But um, sometimes they think that's not the case. And we really need um, a multidisciplinary approach to antibiotic stewardship, especially in the outpatient setting. So providers need to buy into the idea that not um, we don't always need to use antibiotics. Um, and that really needs to be um, discussed with infectious diseases providers, infection preventionists, and even with sociologists who are doing this type of research, asking patients what they really want when they're going to the physician's office. Um, so everybody really has to work together um, to, to make this happen, and having the resources available is a really key component. Exactly. Thank you so much, Dr. King. And Dr. King, what's new in the ADA dental guidelines regarding antibiotic use? That's a great question. Um, This is kind of my most recent passion and obsession. Um, So the American Dental Association has guidelines regarding antibiotic use. And one of the things that they discuss is the use of antibiotic prophylaxis prior to a dental procedure in certain patients. Um, Since 2013, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons has recommended against antibiotic prophylaxis for patients with a history of a joint replacement who require a dental procedure. Um, They have a lot of um, something called appropriate use criteria for the management of patients with orthopedic implants, and there's very few criteria that would say a patient who's had a prosthetic joint put in would really need antibiotics prior to a dental procedure. And some of those examples would be someone who's having manipulation of the gingival tissue or the periapical region of the teeth, perforation of the oral mucosa, and who are also severely immunocompromised or have um, a history of diabetes that might be uncontrolled. So those are the patients that are going to be at biggest risk of developing a, a prosthetic joint infection after a dental procedure. And the pathophysiology there, um, to be put simply, is that During a dental procedure, there could be translocation of of the oral flora, so the bacteria in the mouth, into the bloodstream, which could then go to the prosthetic joint spaces. And um, bacteria love plastic material, metal material, anything that's kind of foreign. They like to live on it and kind of create these little biofilms. So um, that's that's the concern, and that's why there's um, even a discussion about 
what to do with these patients. But the the new guidelines um, from the American Dental Association have been updated to say which patients actually do need prophylaxis. Um, And so there are a few, like I mentioned, patients who have orthopedic implants um, who do need prophylaxis, but very few. And then there's some patients who have um, cardiac disease, so congenital heart disease or prosthetic cardiac valves um, that do require prophylaxis um, before a dental procedure to prevent uh, the development of endocarditis. Um, and the last thing that they updated was their preferred antibiotics. So they've removed clindamycin as a preferred antibiotic, um, partly because, I, as I mentioned earlier, it has such a high risk of C. diff. Um, and there's actually a lot of resistance to it because it has been overused. Um, so now it's actually preferred to use amoxicillin um, prior to a dental procedure um, or cephalexin. Um, and only if the patient has anaphylaxis or hives or a severe allergic reaction to beta-lactam, so the amoxicillin, the cephalexin, then you might use azithromycin um, as your, your alternative. Um, but they're really saying to avoid clindamycin, which is a big change from prior guidelines. That is amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that information. We did not know. And we've all learned something new today, that's for sure. And Dr. King, at this time, yeah, it is. It's wonderful. Thank you so much. And at this time, we are going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing C. difficile guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship with our guest, Dr. Madeline King. We'll be right back after these messages. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products, EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes, trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing, number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. And welcome back to the program, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today. And we welcome back our special guest, Dr. Madeline King, here to discuss C. difficile guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship. Welcome back to the program, Dr. King. Thank you. You're welcome. And we are so grateful that you're here with us today. We're learning so much. And Dr. King, 
you know, you you love teaching, and not just your residents, um, but also, I'm sure, with patients. And you would be wonderful if you could share with the patients on um, how they sh- how they can discuss these things with their providers. And like, should patients take probiotics or live cultured yogurt while on antibiotics? Would you mind sharing that information with them? Yeah, of course. I think it's really important and maybe not discussed enough on the, you know, on the level of patients versus being discussed among providers. Um, And I I think a lot of patients do ask their retail pharmacists or even their physicians about taking probiotics while they're on an antibiotic regimen or those yogurts that have live cultures in them. Um, And honestly, the data doesn't really support it. There have been numerous studies um, that compare patients taking probiotics to not taking probiotics, and there's no consistent answer saying they really show a significant benefit. Um, And if you think about it logically, if you're taking probiotics, which are essentially gut bacteria that you're replacing, um, and then you take an antibiotic, it's going to kill off those bacteria as well. So unless you time it just right, you're probably not adding that much to your gut flora. Um, There was only one study that I can recall that showed a benefit, but the patients were receiving probiotics and oral vancomycin as prophylaxis um, and not just probiotics alone. So um, probiotics themselves, like the kind you buy over the counter in a health food store, in a pharmacy that come as capsules or liquids, um, they're not necessarily regulated the same way prescription drugs are um, or or even other over-the-counter drugs like Tylenol. Um, so they actually don't have to go through any um, any checks and balances the same way that those other drugs do. So probiotics over-the-counter may actually be essentially like sugar pills. They may not have anything in them, or they may have some bacteria, but they don't have the amount they say they do, or they don't have the type they say they do. So um, they're just not regulated as well as other medications. Um, so even saying that they might work, you don't know what you're getting when you buy them, unfortunately. Um, there are some manufacturers of um, over-the-counter herbal supplements and probiotics that do opt to go through some, um, some evaluations, but they're not required to. Um, yogurt may be more regulated because it's going through um, FDA because it's a food product. Um, but again, there's not really any data to support its use as a probiotic agent while patients are taking antibiotics. Um, these are probably not harmful usually. So if patients want to take probiotics or yogurt while they're on an antibiotic course, for the most part, it's not harmful. It just may not help as much as you think. Um, the only caution I would mention here is that patients who have um, some type of immunosuppressant um, medications or in an immunocompromised state, um, they may be harmed by taking probiotics. And we see this in the hospital. I haven't personally seen it outside of the hospital, um, but patients who have um, immunosuppressing drugs after maybe a solid organ transplant who receive probiotics have actually developed infections from the bacteria from the probiotics. So um, while I say it's not harmful, that's in most people, but, you know, you'd really want to ask the pharmacist or the provider if it's safe for you to take um, before choosing to take them. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. And also here at the CETA Foundation, we also counsel the patients calling in and also refer them back to food, Uh, the food, the nutrients. There are foods that are fermented foods, 
that also have a probiotic um, source, which is probably like like you, like you said, we, there's not enough data, and we don't even know how many trillions of a certain um, live enzyme we're supposed to be getting, right? Exactly. Exactly. So we understand, and we thank you for that answer and for explaining that. And Dr. King, can you explain the difference between C. difficile and general diarrhea? Yeah. So the main difference is that um, C. difficile is an infection. So it's an overgrowth of Clostridium difficile, um, which I should note has been renamed as Clostridioides difficile recently. Um, so C. difficile is, is overgrowing in the gut because other organisms have been killed off by the antibiotics the patient is receiving. Um, so a lot of people can have diarrhea from um, antibiotics just because like a few, uh, a few bacteria get um, killed off, uh, upset stomach, and then it kind of resolves. Um, however, C. diff is more severe. So it's a true infection that needs to be treated with other antibiotics. I know that doesn't sound like it makes sense, but um, we do need to treat C. difficile with other antibiotics. Um, so patients who develop C. difficile will typically have a fever. So that's one sign of a true infection versus just simple diarrhea. Um, they may also have more abdominal pain than someone who has just general diarrhea. And typically, it's going to be more frequent episodes of diarrhea. Um, people who work in a hospital will tell you that there's a, a different smell to diarrhea that's from C. diff than others. But, you know, that's not a very objective measure of C. diff versus general diarrhea. So that's really the main difference is, is the, um, the infections, the more symptoms of an actual infection versus the localized um, symptoms of diarrhea. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. King. And Dr. King, can you share with our listeners, um, especially to the patients, on how they can better advocate for themselves to prevent overuse of uh, antibiotics and to reduce the risk of acquiring a C. diff infection? Yeah, definitely. I think there's a lot of ways that patients can advocate for themselves if they if they know um, more about the risks of C. diff, which I think maybe a lot of people don't know. Um, so I would say one of the main things um, is not going into an appointment um, asking for antibiotics for either yourself or your kids or your other loved ones. Um, a lot of times providers will say that something seems viral and they would rather kind of watch and wait. Um, so wait a few days if you're not getting better, then maybe consider antibiotics. And I think it's really important to follow that advice um, and to not specifically go into an appointment saying, I know I have an infection. I've had this before. I need antibiotics for this. Um, other things that can be done, um, so you could ask if the duration of antibiotics can be shortened. So maybe you're prescribed a 10-day course of antibiotics and you say, do I really need to take 10 days? Could it be shortened? You know, some providers may be willing to kind of discuss that. There, there's a lot of guidance coming out in the past uh, 10 years or so that recommends shorter durations of antibiotic therapy for a lot of different disease states. Um, so, you know, just because you've gotten 10 days of antibiotics in the past when you've had whatever infection, a sore throat or upper respiratory infection, doesn't mean that that's still the current recommendation. Um, most providers stay up to date with things like this, but it's, it's definitely worth asking if it seems like a very long course. Um, there's obviously exceptions to that. There are times we need longer courses of antibiotics. Um, but for some of the more mild things, it's possible that shorter duration is effective. 
Um, I know y'all had a, a previous episode on the effect of penicillin allergies on the risk of C. diff, and I just wanted to re- reiterate um, that it's important for patients to be aware of their true allergies to antibiotics. So, um, you know, if a patient was told that as a child they had a reaction to penicillin so they should never take it, that may not necessarily be a true allergy, and that would be something we call like an IgE-mediated allergy, where the immune system is kicking in and causing hives or anaphylaxis and um, shortness of breath. Um, So it's really important to distinguish between true antibiotic allergy and antibiotic side effect. Um, Patients can get skin testing done with an allergist or sometimes with other primary care providers, depending on the provider. Um, They can get penicillin skin testing done to determine if they have a true allergy to penicillin. Um, It's also possible to get skin tested for other antibiotics. Um, And the other thing is, if you've always been told you had an allergy, think back to what the actual reaction was um, and discuss that with the provider or the pharmacist and say, you know, I've always been told I had an allergy to this, but all I remember is an upset stomach or um, something kind of mild. And they may be able to tell you that's not a real allergy. And what that does is that allows us to give more appropriate antibiotics. So oftentimes that means not having to give clindamycin or not having to give something much more broad, um, avoiding those penicillins that are pretty narrow. So um, another way that patients can advocate for themselves or for loved ones is a lot of patients who live in skilled nursing facilities um, or other types of assisted living, um, family members can really be involved in their care. There's a lot of inappropriate antibiotic use in nursing facilities um, and a lot of overuse in facilities. Um, some examples I've seen are that, you know, an, an elderly person who is having confusion might be misdiagnosed with having a urinary tract infection and they get antibiotics when there's really something else going on. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. So if family members are really involved in their loved one's care, they can discuss with the provider, the nursing staff, whoever's um, there at the nursing home, you know, does my loved one really need antibiotics, could this be something else, or take them outside of the nursing facility to see a provider on the outside. Um, so lots of ways to advocate for that. I would say, you know, just, just being aware that um, there are risks to antibiotics, they aren't benign, um, and just feeling like you can ask the provider more questions about the antibiotics that they're choosing for you and the duration that they're choosing for you. Exactly. Thanks so much, Dr. King. And Dr. King, would you suggest or recommend um, the the listeners to also discuss with their providers if there is a diagnostic that can be done to confirm a bacterial infection versus a virus? Oh, for sure. Um, There's definitely ways that we can detect um, viral infections, especially for upper respiratory infections versus bacterial. I would say the challenge there is not a lot of outpatient facilities have those capabilities. Um, in the hospital, it's relatively easy to send our lab um, a request for a viral panel, and we check for all the common respiratory viruses. And we can also get cultures of any sputum that the patient has maybe coughed up in the example of a respiratory infection. Um, in the outpatient setting, that's much harder to do. There aren't often labs on site. Um, and they may not be able to get results as quickly as they can in the hospital. Um, so things that can be done relatively easily are like a rapid influenza swab or now that COVID is so prevalent, um, the COVID 
tests, and then we can do the rapid strep test. So those things can all be done in outpatient settings pretty easily. Um, but otherwise, it, it is a challenge because if you if you get a sputum sample and you want to send it off to see what's growing, so we'll see if bacteria is growing, that takes a few days. So by that time, the patient's probably either already feeling better or has already been started on an antibiotic, and it's not really useful information. Um, the viral panels, if they can be done at a provider's office in the outpatient setting, that's great because we can easily detect if a virus is present and rule out a bacterial infection um, and then say we don't need any antibiotics. Um, but it, it definitely presents a challenge in the outpatient setting. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. King, for reviewing all that information. And at this time, we we're going to pause for a commercial break. When we return, we will continue discussing C. difficile guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship with our guest, Dr. Madeline King. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Clorox Healthcare bleach products, cited by more studies to kill C. diff than any other products. EPA registered to kill C. diff in as fast as three minutes. Trusted disinfectants to kill C. diff spores in hospitals, because even one C. diff infection is too many. Learn more at CloroxHealthcare.com. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear 2 to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting, or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. Have you done any of these things today? Exited a restroom? Entered and exited a patient's room? Visited a doctor's office? Have you done this today? Washed your hands? Hand washing remains the single most important task of the day. It takes soap, water, a minimum of 30 seconds, and a clean dry towel to turn off faucets and dry hands to stop giving germs a free ride. Keep safe from germs worldwide. Hand washing. Number one in infection prevention. For additional information on hand washing instructions, visit cdifffoundation.org. You are listening to C. diff spores and more. If you have a question, please send an email to info at cdifffoundation.org. Now back to our program. Here again is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome back to the program, everyone, and thanks so much for joining us today. We welcome back Dr. Madeline King to the program to discuss C. difficile guideline updates and antibiotic stewardship. Welcome back to the program, Dr. King. Thank you. 
You're welcome. It's been a pleasure having you here today. And here we are um, about to get ready to close the program. And we want to know, is there anything else that you'd like to share? And are there any additional key points that you would like to share before we close the program about C. difficile management and prevention from your perspective? Yeah, of course. Um, I'd love to kind of summarize what I've been talking about and reiterate some of the key points. Um, one of the things I want to mention is that um, C. difficile is, is seen in the outpatient and in the inpatient setting. It's not just a disease of inpatient setting where we use a lot of antibiotics and patients are kind of in closer quarters. So um, knowing that antibiotics in the community as well as in the hospital can all increase the risk of C. diff is something just patients should be aware of. Um, there are a lot of antimicrobial stewardship efforts um, in the inpatient and outpatient setting, and there's actually requirements um, for the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, as well as the CDC, um, has created guidelines on antimicrobial stewardship in different settings. Um, and we're working really hard from the infectious diseases side of things to reduce inappropriate antibiotic use and improve appropriate antibiotic use. So things like not asking for antibiotics when you um, go to the provider's office is really important. Um, or when you're calling your dentist on the weekend to tell them that you're having some pain um, and asking for an antibiotic versus asking to come in and have it evaluated. Um, sometimes an antibiotic is not the right choice in those settings, and it, it can be challenging for the patient because, you know, they're at home in pain, but... The, the better option is really just to get evaluated if possible because even one dose of antibiotics can cause C. diff. Um, there's some example case reports in the literature talking about patients getting uh, developing C. diff after one dose of antibiotics that they're receiving prior to surgery um, or post-surgery. And we've seen this in our hospital as well. So, you know, they're not benign and it doesn't take much to really throw off the gut flora. Um, and once someone has had an episode of C. diff, the risk that they'll have a second or third episode is very high. Um, what I've seen in the literature is about um, a 20% chance of a second episode if someone's had a first episode. And after two episodes, someone has nearly a 40% chance of having a third episode. So we really want to prevent it from the start and not have any episodes of C. diff. So really minimizing the amount of antibiotics that are taken inappropriately is, is very important. Um, I want to be clear that I'm not saying to avoid antibiotics completely. Sometimes they are truly life-saving. Um, and sometimes they're really important just for um, improvement in symptoms or improvement in, um, you know, the patient's ability to function and get up and go to work. But um, there's definitely times that they're used inappropriately. Um, I've seen estimates that up to 30% of antibiotics that are written as outpatient prescriptions are inappropriate, so totally unnecessary um, or the wrong antibiotic was chosen. So that's a, that's a big number that we really need to work to get down. Um, in addition, um, sometimes clindamycin is necessary, even though I was um, talking bad about it earlier. Um, there's very few instances where it is necessary, but occasionally it is. Um, and if you're thinking about um, antibiotics for your kids and maybe you're worried they have an antibiotic allergy, again, it's really important to test and make sure that's a true allergy so that we can always give the, the first-line choices of antibiotics um, instead of it's a second or third line to avoid something that you may not really be allergic to. 
Um, and especially thinking about kids and clindamycin, um, clindamycin has a pretty terrible taste, so I can't imagine trying to get a kid to take it. So you want to make sure they can take the, the pink stuff that tastes good. Um, and so evaluating for those drug allergies um, and making sure that they're getting the appropriate antibiotics is really important. Um, and those are really the main points that I had. Um, I've got a couple of resources that I'll mention um, that patients and healthcare providers may find useful. Um, obviously, the CEDIS Foundation is a great resource for patients and providers. Um, the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC.gov website, um, has guidelines and information on C. diff infections, both tailored to patients and healthcare providers as well as antimicrobial stewardship guidelines um, if anyone is interested in learning more about the stewardship efforts that we're putting into place. Um, and the last place that has a lot of patient resources and an entire toolkit about C. diff is ahrq.gov. Um, they have a lot of resources about different medical topics and medications, but I did find a nice C. diff toolkit that I think might be useful for some of the listeners. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Dr. King, for sharing all of this educational material with our listening audience today. And we just want to thank you so much for being on CDIP Spores and More today and for your dedication in healthcare. And we would like to also acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, protecting the gut microbiome, clinical trials, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff prevention and treatments, please visit the C. diff Foundation's website, cdiff.foundation and the clinical trials that are in progress help them to help you to help others to learn more about come upcoming events that you will not want to miss out on please visit the cdiff foundation's website and also take a minute to sign up for january 28th um cdiff patients family and caregiver symposium sponsored by Faring pharmaceuticals it will be on January 28th from 1 to 3 p.m. We send out our get well wishes to all the patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness training illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corella, with you, our reminder that none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health, continued healing, and a good day. <music> Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. 